Hello and welcome to Peace of Mind, a podcast looking at mental health and psychiatric conditions and the science behind them. My name is Borja Lagonia. I'm the research coordinator for the National Centre for Mental Health based here at Cardiff University. And we're bringing you conversations from patients affected by these conditions alongside researchers working at furthering the understanding of an incredibly complex area of psychology and biology. And this episode, we're talking about sleep and mental health. So I'd like to welcome our guests for this episode, Dr. Ajay Thapa and Dr. Katie Lewis, researchers working with us here in Cardiff. So thank you both very much for taking time today and actually taking part in this. So the best way I think to start is probably if you guys introduce yourselves and some of the work that you're that you currently undertake and do here within the department. So okay. Katie? Yeah, so um, I'm a research associate at the MRC Centre for Neuropsychiatric Genetics and Genomics. Um, my work mostly looks at how sleep loss affects people with bipolar disorder and at the moment I'm looking at how um, genetic uh, differences between people um, in their sleep traits like insomnia or uh, hypersomnia or their chronotype which we'll might talk about later um, how that might influence uh, certain um, expressions of bipolar illness like mood episodes and things like that. Excellent and you just recently finished your PhD. Yeah. Yeah. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so, Ajay? Hi, uh, I'm, I'm actually an ex-GP. I just uh, was working clinical until last year, and that, that stimulated my interest in sleep and its management because I could see how much problems um, not sleeping was causing and also became apparent that there were sort of problems in how sleep was being managed. So I spent a bit of time in San Francisco learning about sleep and sleep management because they have dedicated sleep clinics in the states and so um and and after that i'm the main idea is to try and disseminate some of the things i've learned to the uk excellent so that was as part of the winston church memorial yeah, trust yeah that's fellowship. it yeah yeah excellent so that was an opportunity for you to go out there work with researchers who already w- work in the field to expand your knowledge and expand yeah that's right so that you know so that that's a you know you get a, you get a chance they'll fund you for four weeks to spend at you know one of the sort of uh, world leading centers in whatever area you're interested in and so i spent in san francisco because they've got a lot of a uh, lot of the research on sleep takes takes place there so Excellent. i could see several people there so why do you both why was it sleep for, for either of you that particularly interested you obviously aj from your gp background but why from the biological background what was it sleep um well i guess now it's i guess it was a, a while ago it was when i was doing my a levels in psychology which i think now is like 13 years ago it's embarrassing and I just remember we had one little module on sleep and uh, and I thought it was really fascinating I, there wasn't actually that much on it and also uh, and at that time as well I I thought I just had a bit of a sleep quirk and I mentioned it to my psychology teacher when we were discussing things and she said oh I think that's actually a sleep disorder so it turns out I actually had a sleep disorder and then ended up seeing some um, people about it and again that reinforced this uh, impression I had that there wasn't that much research on on sleep and oh we didn't there's lots of things we don't know about sleep and then finally when I started working here at, uh, the, at the MRC Centre I was working on a project um, looking at psychiatric disorders in in children and I noticed that in lots of different mental health conditions sleep is impaired um i just thought it was really interesting really so do you really think that we're starting to begin it become more interested starting to become to understand it better as a society are we able to i mean we spend so much of our time asleep obviously is going to have an impact on our lifestyles mm. and our lives mm. do you think it's going to a point at which we're starting to actually have a better healthier relationship with our sleep patterns and that kind of thing yeah, I, I think it's it's it, it's it's sort of uh, for a, for a long time. I think it was just, you know, it was just sort of uh, sort of explained away. Oh, it's just one of those one of those things. And and now because of all sort of a lot of advances and sort of there's been a lot of genetic research. There's been more 
longitudinal research. So that we're starting to understand sleep a bit better, and it is a quite comp- much more complicated than probably was sort of made out to be. It was felt to be just like a symptom of mental, you know, some a bit of mental health distress, but. But it is much, so it is more complicated. So it's it's more better understood, and I think that's that's uh, sort of really triggering a lot of uh, work on it. And I think um, so. Um, so yeah, no, I think recently there's been a lot more on sleep than there was probably sort of a, a while ago. It's getting better understood. And why mental health for you both in psychiatric conditions? Why why study such an area? I found I was working in that area anyway and it was just interesting just reading the descriptions of each of the psychiatric disorders and you notice that that problems with sleep are a feature of almost every single one and I just started reading about it out of my out of interest because yeah. I thought oh I wonder um, you know do sleep problems predict people then getting sleep uh, getting psychiatric disorders or is it the other way around and that was a question I find really interesting because it is very difficult to disentangle that really hopefully we'll try and disentangle <laughs> in the, the next few questions so what we're doing with this podcast is it's slightly different usually we have someone who's uh, got a lived experience one of our NCMH participants but today we're going to be taking questions from people who are involved with us through Twitter through Instagram through all of, all of our other social medias our Facebook which our communications team very well handle for us so We've got a few questions for you guys, and hopefully we'll be able to have a chat about each of these questions and and go a bit deeper into each of them as well. So are you happy to go ahead with that and yeah. start with those? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So the first one is uh, from uh, Scott Morgan, who got in touch with us and asked, is there anything scientific about uh, the quote, I'm, not ju- I'm just not a morning person, or is it just down to personal habits? Well, um, I think, well, the short answer is, there, I think there is a scientific basis to to that. Um, so our chronotype, um, which is whether you're a morning or an evening person, um, we know is down to our circadian rhythms. So these are uh, roughly 24-hour rhythms that control loads of different processes in our body and primarily when we feel sleepy or alert and what's interesting about the word circadian is that it means around 24 hours and that's because all everyone's circadian rhythm isn't exactly 24 hours it's about uh, 24 hours and 15 minutes long our sleep wake cycle is so we need to be entrained by um, things in the environment and the main thing that helps us to um, keeping in time with our environment is the sun. Um, so, in people who have who are morning types, those rhythms, our circadian rhythms, are running a little bit faster and earlier. So they'll feel uh, sleepy earlier in the night, but they'll also feel more alert earlier in the day. And for evening types, they'll feel uh, tired later in the night. And they've been shown to be physiological differences between morning types and evening types and okay. a genetic basis genetic basis for that as well so can you change your chronotype can it, can it be altered well it's um <clears throat> the your chronotype changes during your lifespan as you as um in for example in late adolescence uh, as you know you you do tend to become more of an evening type you will then have difficulty falling asleep and then you'll sleep later as anyone who's got you know teenager (laughs) children will know that and basically that's not because they're sort of just wild it's it's basically an intrinsic biological change their chronotype changes to more evening type and then sort of from an age of about sort of about 19 or 20 for girls 21 for boys then they start then going to uh, then it changes changes back to becoming less of an evening type so change and then when you get older then you you become more of a morning person where you tend to fall asleep earlier and and sort of uh, wake up earlier so it changes through the lifespan um whether you can change it consciously that's that's it's difficult probably there will there are adaptations you know as you, anyone's you know whenever you travel you do adapt yeah. your you know your your clock to wherever you are um so but whether um whether you can permanently change it it's it's difficult because it, a lot of this is genetic as well there are very 
very good, strong um, genetic influences on some people who are, you know, which makes them ex the extreme morning types or extreme evening types, and that runs in families. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So. So yeah. So we yeah. For for some people, you know, I think again, it's you know, like a lot of sleep stuff. There's a lot of, lot of active research going on in in this. So you know, we don't. So this um, if if you're if you're more of a morning person, a morning lark, or a night owl. And you have an, a job or a lifestyle that's in complete contrast to to your chronotype. Yes, is that going to have a negative impact on your on your health? Um, it does sort of, as uh, most uni university students will tell you, that it does have an impact on performance, as uh, uh, you know, just by sort of sleeping students in lectures and things. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so research is at the So um, yeah. So so there are you know there are sort of uh, there are definitely impacts on concentration and um, you know it, and uh, performance. Um, but there are methods you can take to sort of uh, to sort of try and sort of minimise those. So we um, have yeah, one of those is um, going back to the uh, master clock that controls our circadian rhythms. Yeah. Um, so that the primary uh, thing that that aligns that with the twenty four hour light dark cycle is is the is the sun. Um, so we call something actually that that will entrain your circadian rhythms a zeit a zeitgeber so okay. from the german meaning time giver um and so if you're a morning type so if if you're a morning type and you want to be able to stay awake a bit later one way is through using light so if you expose yourself to more bright light later on in the day that it can actually help to prolong your um, desire to stay awake and likewise if you're an evening type and you want to try and make make yourself go to bed a bit earlier then one way to make yourself feel more sleepy is to expose yourself to lots of natural light as early on in the day as possible to, so you won't make a dramatic difference but it will maybe adjust your rhythm a little bit more so there are steps that you can take to kind of like mm -hmm. yeah. shift those hours a little bit yeah yeah. Okay, and does that is that would be the same case with a, a was it sleep deficit or anything like that where people are sleeping longer at the weekends or Ooh. yeah I mean that's uh, obviously your body often does that I mean whether that's obviously that does make it give you some difficulties in terms of trying to keep yourself um, your patterns more regular but yeah so some of your sleep deficit will be by longer sleeps in the weekend but that's obviously the, the pros and cons of that um, what a lot of people obviously use is things like short naps when you when you you know to try and minim minimize more of your difficulties with concentration so yeah i suppose when it's unavoidable and there are performance issues then probably what a lot of people use is short naps but it, they have to be pretty short and they have to be pretty early in the day yeah for so you not, not three hour afternoon after not yeah afternoon. sort of after four in the afternoon you'll probably not be a good idea because that would then actually reduce your sleep drive for the next night so you'd probably sleep worse than the next night but um, certainly sh uh, a short nap is probably commonly used and 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 when it's unavoidable in terms of your sleep patterns then that might be helpful in fact there were some interesting studies looking at um, tribes where that are not in industrialized um, places um, because so our sleep patterns are in some ways influenced by industrial society requirement to kind of get up for uh, work. Yeah, work with eight hours a day at specific times that are not necessarily always that great for people if you're an evening type. Um, but some researchers looked at um, some tribes where they didn't have that those limitations, and they found that they actually slept. Um, a bit sh shorter for a bit a shorter period during the night and also did then have a nap um, in the afternoon and most people will know that if you've gone to a meeting just after lunch then you'll feel quite sleepy and that is a natural circadian mm. dip in arousal that happens so some researchers argue that naturally we are kind of programmed to take a nap in in the afternoon mm. no, okay it's just randomly, but is it? Called, I mean, it's quite interesting. We did, it was the Winston Churchill Memorial yes. Trust because he got that, a really yeah. notorious, uh, yeah, notorious yeah. napper, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he got us, you know, and uh, yeah, no, of course he had. He was famous for a lot for his uh, naps and very long. Uh, he was a extreme evening type. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so 
so yeah, it's 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 um, it's you know obviously it does tend to affect your sleep drive. So pure, if you look at sleep guidance, they discourage naps. Mm-hmm. But I think one's got to be pragmatic because if there is going to be marked performance uh, impairment, and you know, and you you then have to adapt to it. And that's and like Katie was saying, in some parts of the world, it's quite normal to have an afternoon nap. You know. Um, the siesta. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's um, it is it. Uh, you have to be. You know, it's, it's again just being sort of uh, realistic because it's um, you know, and you and being safe really. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, thanks to Scott for that question. I mean, so we've got some more. Um, Adam Cunningham uh, got in touch with us. Less. How much um, caffeine does it really take to affect your sleep? And will it affect your sleep? Really? <laughs> as we, yeah, again, um, as we all know, there's there's huge differences in different people. Some people can have a coffee before they go to bed, and some people sort of any coffee after midday, then they they're sort of they're sort of uh, convinced that is going to really uh, mess their sleep up. I think for some people, caffeine does definitely mess your sleep up, um, and. But different people are sensitive to different types of uh, doses, I think. Um, and, yeah, so it's, it's doing a bit of research on this. Uh, Starbucks coffee contains about 150 milligrams of caffeine. Um, and a study which looked, gave people a 400 milligrams of caffeine um, found that for quite a lot of people, even if that was taken six hours, six to 12 hours before they went to bed would have an effect on their sleep. With 400 milligrams? 400 milligrams would be about sort of, well, about two, two, three shots of uh, coffee. So, but there are other people who won't be. And and again, it might, there is some sort of a genetic basis for it. Some people have a a genetic variant which just makes them less susceptible to caffeine and some people do uh, so so there's no one answer it, it it does vary a lot person to person um but if you are susceptible then you know it's um so you you'd be talking about sort of less than sort of 400 milligrams and you know at least six hours because what the half-life is about yeah so the half-life is about five to six hours um so that just means that five hours after having some caffeine 50 percent of it will still be in your bloodstream and also remember if you if you're drinking something that's decaffeinated it doesn't mean it's uncaffeinated there'll still be some caffeine in there and there'll still be caffeine in things like dark chocolate um Mm. other foods as well that have caffeine in them that we don't often think about um fizzy drinks often have it added don't they yeah 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 yeah. um and like Adjo was saying this people vary quite a lot and different things like how old you are or Mm. um your weight what medic other medication you're taking um will all influence that half-life of caffeine so for example um women in 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 the later stages of pregnancy the half-life of caffeine can be as long as 18 hours Wow, okay. Yeah, mm. so it changes quite a lot. So they're a lot more susceptible to having the effects yeah. of that later mm. on in the evening. Yeah. So again, it's a case of trying to figure out what's best for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's what makes sleep research so difficult. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes there's a huge number, of, bit of huge variation between people. Mm. That's, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So um, similar along those kinds of lines, are there any natural sleep remedies that actually work? That's another question from Adam. Um... That there isn't any evidence to support using any other remedies. Uh, now, whether some, obviously, there are a lot of anecdotal reports that some people find uh, certain things helpful. But in terms of rigorous trials to say, well, uh, you know, does this definitely work? There isn't any good evidence saying anything. You know, um, any sort of herbal remedies have a definite effect on uh, on, on people. So. But yeah, it, it's you know if there were more trials done, possibly we you know there may be things which are effective, but a lot of a lot of the problems then they're, they're not evaluated, so it's hard to then tell someone use this because um, even a lot of herbal remedies can have quite a lot of adverse effects as well. So then it's not they're not without risk. Mm. So you want to be pretty sure that if you're recommending something, it's actually effective and it's safe. So so that's the. Um, 
so that's the issue at the moment. But I think all sort of all the current guidelines suggest that you know there isn't anything you know herbal which is will definitely there's no work. magic cure for it. Yeah. So there's no magic cure for insomnia either then. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's not a magic cure for it, no. But um, yeah. one of the th- questions we do have from, from uh, Sarah Jacks talks about insomnia, asks about insomnia, whether insomnia is a trigger or a consequence of a mental health condition. Well, I guess right. it, it could be both, really. That, um, we know that the areas of the brain involved in regulating sleep uh, overlap with those that regulate our mood. So if you disrupt your sleep, you'll disrupt your mood and vice versa. So, yeah, that does make it tricky then for us to know in a particular person what, you know, what caused what. Um, however, there are uh, studies showing that um, if you are suffering from insomnia, you are at a higher risk later on in life of developing depression um, and... Uh, I've lost my train of thought now. No, it's absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah. So some of the work that uh, you, you saw over in uh, the US, Ajay, yeah. said that insomnia isn't a likely, there's little evidence for insomnia being a direct cause of Well, it's, it's not, not, not as, um, it, it's just that it's more complex. Not that it, for some people probably it, it may, uh, may influence later mental health. Sure. The difficulty is that quite often there's a common cause, yeah. which is that, your genetics obviously can influence your sleep and can influence your mood. So there may well be something genetic which is causing both the problems, but because the insomnia comes first and the depression comes second, it's not that the insomnia is causing the depression, it's just that the insomnia was an early symptom and the depression was a sure. later symptom. So and like Katie says, the, the, yeah. the higher increase, like the risk might only be evident much later on when you actually yeah. someone might develop that condition. So yeah, so that's the difficulty in that um, it's and nearly there's been a lot of recent research suggesting the relationship is very at least bi-directional, so that they both can sort of have an effect on each other. But it may just be that they're just a common cause. So mm-hmm. yeah. So there's some people out in the uh, US and they're studying the effects of C- uh, the. Um, sorry, I could just hear. I don't know if it's training in the background or what. But anyway, we'll draw we'll <laughs> out. Um, the use of a cognitive behavioural therapy yeah. as a therapy for insomnia. Yeah. So that's something that I've not really come across before yeah. and it seems to be relatively new. No, that's that was one of the... Um, I, I'd sort of... I'd, I'd read about this when I was in the UK before I went to the US and that's one of the reasons I chose the where I went to because they they were... Uh, certainly Dr. Mambo, who I worked with, was one of the pioneers in developing this. Now this is, it's called called cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia, but it's quite different from CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, which you'd use for anxiety or depression, in that there's a big focus in the of changing your behavior rather than changing just changing your thoughts right okay so so for example and uh, and it's been shown now to be one of the most effective ways of treating insomnia it's at least as effective as sleeping tablets but it seems the effects seem to persist for longer so the thing with sleeping tablets you take them you might sleep when you take them but when you leave them off you're going to have the same problem with there, there's been a few studies which have shown that that effect can persist if you've used CBT that, that you can have a longer term um, benefit so so yeah. is it a case that then in that case you'd have to have the physician or the GP recognise that the person is having a, a, a significant impact on their uh, just yeah. day-to-day life from the insomnia yeah so is there a d- difficulty in diagnosing people with uh, who have genuine insomnia as opposed to just having yeah sleep yeah no it's it it is i mean i think the the problem is that getting sleeplessness it, uh, uh, is is common i mean probably nearly all of us have had sleep problems now and now and again uh but for about one in ten people probably that they have persistent problems and there are sort of definitions like sort of you know you've got to take at least it's got to be at least half an hour sort of uh problem in falling asleep getting waking waking up or or waking early and at least three times a week and at least for three months that's the definition of it so those people will be defined by uh, as having insomnia disorder and so for them uh, probably be worth the investment of time that it's going to take to use CBTI because because the issue is that you don't want to be 
you know, you modifying all your lifestyle for something which is going to pass because you were just stressed about your job or something. So that's, you know, because it's everything. Um, so that's the. So once you, there's a lot of evidence that it isn't recognised, though. That a lot of people suffer without sort of seeking help. And um, so, if it's sort of something which is, rec- you know, long-standing and and recurrent, then it is something that one should seek help for. And then, if you seek help, then it's and then CBTI is a, it's it's been shown to be quite effective. So, would that be rolled out uh, across? Is that something that the <laughs> UK might be looking at? To well, there's, uh, well, in England, I think it's slightly, but not. It's slightly easier to get to get it on yeah. the NHS, but then there's still quite long waiting. Yeah, there, there's it, there's more sort of there's a lot of regional variations in how easily you can get hold of this kind of help sure. on the NHS. Um, in some areas in England, you have very good access to psychologists who are, who generally deliver this, um, but in say like in Wales that it's it, it's it can be sometimes be more difficult. So it's uh, like a lot of services it's just a case yeah. of trying to find yeah. who's gonna be able to refer you. And they're also but they're also now uh, more web based and app based sort of programs which 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 now have been shown to be effective for some people. What what do you both think of those web based uh, uh, especially this, specifically the app based um, sleep helps. I mean, you've got, yeah, yeah, you've got to be careful with sleep apps, yeah. especially the one bugbear I have because mm. um, in my research I use something called actigraphy, which yes. is where you use activity monitoring to try and look at sleep patterns. So these are these are watches that yeah. people wear when they're so that you can you can and then you get yeah. a lovely complicated looking graph yeah. and it tells you you know exactly whether that person's awake or asleep. Yeah, and then often when I if I would speak about do talks about this, there's always. Um, for a while there was always at least one person who would say oh I've got this app and, it, and I put it on my bed and it tells me when I'm in light sleep and I feel like oh no <laughs> like you know it's important to realise that anything that's based on movement is not telling you about mm. your brain yeah. activity nest- and also if it's on your mattress it's not even on you so it's your, it'll be influenced by what you know your mattress type if you've got a bed partner and all yeah. things like that if you've got pets yeah we've got pets <laughs> as well um but in terms of these cbti online um th- uh, therapies there was um one of them called sleepio which has been developed by um some clinical psychologists in based at oxford um that one i think has been tested and mm. has been found to be quite good in, in comparison to seeing somebody in in the flesh mm. and i think the, it's it's specific to that in that it's um set up that you actually see a little professor who talks to you and yeah. things like that so that does that one does seem to be based on good evidence that it that it works it's just kind of getting access to it and i think you may be able to get free access to it if you take part in their research um but then you have to be eligible for their research so mm. i think it's something really important for in wales that something that we can help people get access to further down mm. the line really because yeah. there does seem to be a, a lack of of resources available. Absolutely, yes. and with a lot of these apps that we mentioned, or any of these papers that we mentioned, we'll put the resources up on our NCMH website so mm. people can mm. access it. And the other thing that we'll talk about a little bit later on is about uh, you can access a sleep diary. So if you want to download oh, the sleep yeah. diary, you can get that off the NCMH website yeah. and uh, hopefully help anyone who's out there who uh, has sleep issues. While I remember as well, on yep. the Sleepio webpage, there is. Um, uh, if you go in, there's one section called articles, and um, the creators of it have written a few really short articles about sleep um, in a variety of um, diff- different scenarios, like insomnia or um, children's sleep, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And so they're nice little short articles that you can read um, that are based yeah. on CBTI mm-hmm. as well. Excellent. Yeah, so moving on to our, an, another question from our wonderful Twitter friends and and NCMH family in general. Um, <laughs> it's from Emma Weinel, who asks, what happens to our brain when we sleep and why do we dream? Mm, well, simply put, I guess, um, when we sleep, there's changes in our brain activity. Um, and one way of describing this is if we imagine that you went to go see... Uh, 
Wales play rugby in the Principality Stadium. If you go in into the stadium and every member of the crowd is a new Ron, then when you first go, everyone's chatting away um, and the activity is really sort of de- unsynchronised and chaotic. And that's kind of what our brain waves will look like when, um, like when, when we're awake. But then when we go into lighter stages of sleep, which we call non-REM sleep, okay. um, well, there's non-REM, uh, non-REM comprises of light sleep and deep sleep. So the light, lighter stages um, will be when people are settling down a bit, maybe shanking the goat has come on, come on the pitch and everyone's looking and they're not talking as much. So then you see the brainwaves are still a bit sort of unsynchronized, but they're a little bit slower. And then finally, imagine when the match is actually going ahead and everyone's singing Bread of Heaven together. That's like all the neurons are all firing in unison and they're producing these big slow waves and that's um we're in 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 rem sleep we call deep deep or uh, slow wave sleep which is really important for memory consolidation finally then we get to dreaming which will actually look very similar to when you first arrived at the at the stadium so this is why um researchers used to call it paradoxical sleep because okay. it actually looked very similar to when people were awake so they'd have their electrodes on their on their patients and would think oh they're awake but then they'd go and look at them and see they had their eyes closed and but interestingly their eyes were fluttering okay hence why it's called REM sleep as well um which stands for rapid eye movement sleep so the question is, how do you tell if somebody, uh, if someone's brain activity looks like they're awake, other than looking at their eyes, how do you tell that they're asleep? So one is that they have those rapid eye movements and the other is muscle atonia, which so basically all your voluntary muscles in your body, basically from the neck down, will just yeah. stop right, moving, okay. will be relaxed. And they th- and we think that that's so that you don't, you don't act out your dreams. So some people have um, REM yeah, sleep yeah. behavior disorder where that process doesn't Work turn properly, on. Yeah. So then they actually start acting out mm. their dreams then. Really? Yeah. Right, okay. Mm. So is that similar to sleepwalking then or is that just a completely different? I think so. <coughs> I don't know. Does sleepwalking happen in REM sleep? Um. I don't know. It might. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not so certain about that. Actually, mm. you know, it's. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, a lot of. Um, there's a lot of debate about exactly why you go through each stage of yeah. s- uh, sleep, and certainly, a big reason for s- for sleeping is in memory consolidation, and that seems to happen in deeper sleep, uh, in sort of stage two of your non rapid eye movement sleep, and a bit also in your rapid eye movement sleep. So, um, so, you, so, so yeah. So you wouldn't, would you achieve those during a nap or would you have to you sleep for a number of hours to achieve um, that kind? Interestingly, the, the, most of your memory consolidation seems to take part in quite light sleep, you know, stage two sleep, which is, comes on about sort of 10 to 15 minutes after you, you know, first sort of uh, fall asleep. So, so your 20 minute nap probably you would have a bit of, you probably could start getting a bit of memory consolidation during that I think time. it depends yeah. on the time of day as time well. I think day, there are some studies that they look at the percentage. So um, you can divide sleep into the non-REM stages and the REM stages and the percentage of what you get, I think, will vary according to what time of day yeah. you're napping. So again, going, that relates to your circadian rhythm again. Um, and the proportions of REM sleep and non-REM sleep that we get will change as we age as well. So when you're a baby or even a fetus, you'll have loads and loads of REM sleep. But then as we get older, we get less and less mm. REM sleep. Right, okay. So they think yeah. that sort of the slow, the deep sleep is, is for um, memory consolidation, forming new yeah. memories. Mm. But then REM sleep is more kind of sorting out things. And also it's important for processing emotional mm. information. Mm. Um, and for facial um, processing. Mm. So interestingly, in, in children with autism, they'll have less, they tend to have less REM sleep. Mm. So I think maybe that might explain problems with interpreting faces mm. and emotions in other people. It's a really interesting area. I mean, yeah. it's such a, it's so mm. fascinating to think yeah. that we've understood so little about it up until, well, I suppose, recently. And it mm. has such an impact in terms of our, not only our yeah. I mean, it's especially our development, our mental health, and our day-to-day functioning. Mm. It's mm. unsurprising that we spend a third of our lives. Is it a third of our lives? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible. It really is. <laughs> um, moving on to so 
Hayley Molden is one of our researchers, and she's asked um, children with a neuro- neurodevelopment disorders, um, do you think sleep is a trigger of behavioural difficulties, a consequence, or <laughs> is there a bit of both? It's, a, I suppose it, it is a, probably a bit of both, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, we certainly have quite good evidence that there are genes which influence both your sleep and your and your neurodevelopmental difficulty so and there have been studies which have shown that um, when you like say like ADHD they been when you followed a children uh, children with ADHD up and some when they get to adulthood and for some people the ADHD rem- remits um, Usually, what happens is the sleep problems also remit at the same time. Right. Okay. So, so they are sort of pretty much sort of hand in hand. So it is hard to sort of, um, it, you know, hard to disentangle it. Undoubtedly, if you have poor sleep, it does make you more irritable. So then, you would possibly imagine that that would make behavioural problems worse. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but but it is quite a complicated sort of relationship because. Um, yeah, it's not s- simply going to cure it if you sort of um, with one night's sleep as well. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. so, so we've got some resources online as well that we can put up, some papers yeah. that talk about the associations between autism and yeah. sleep problems like you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Um, Katie, so, yeah, we can put those up onto the NCMH website and people can access those and learn some more about it. Um, I think we'll probably move on to probably the, the last question from our... Uh, listeners, is uh, how can getting a good night's sleep help individuals with mental health problems such as mood disorders in particular? And that's again from Hayley. <laughs> well, um, there's some evidence that CBTI um, uh, that RJ mentioned can be beneficial for mood in people with bipolar disorder. Um, but what's important to point out here is that um, one of the things in CBTI is something called sleep restriction. So to one of the problems if you suffer from insomnia sometimes is that you, you you think, oh, I need to get more sleep, so I'll go to bed. And then you lie in bed awake and and then uh, get frustrated that you can't sleep. And then you end, you think, oh, and then you're tired the next day. And then you think, fine, I'm going to go eat to bed even early. I'll go to yep. bed at eight. Um, and I've definitely been guilty of this myself. And then lo and behold, you can't get to sleep again. So one of the problems is that people with insomnia are actually spending too much time in bed awake and they end up uh, associating going to bed with just being stressed so sleep restriction is saying actually you're just going to go to sleep what is is it Ajay do they normally say you know try to stay awake till one or two and then it switches people from going oh I can't stay awake that long and it's it's completely changing yeah Yeah, you would change you'd use your sleep diary and you would work out how many hours are you asleep for NCMH sleep diary yeah yeah <laughs> copyright other sleep uh, diaries are yeah. available <laughs> and then you'd work out and look i've been sort of uh, you know added up it's about six and a half hours or so and then you would make you would set a wake up time yeah as to you know and um say you want to get up at 7 a.m and you need and you worked out that you need about six and a half hours sleep so you'd set yourself as um you know, just only going to bed, say, by 1 a.m. So you'd have six hours sleep opportunity. So the idea is that whenever you're in bed, you're asleep. So you want sleep pressure to build up so that... Um, um, and then you would... Uh, and then that, that, that's sort of... And that would be gradually extended so that... Because the key problem is that you're lying in bed awake. Yeah. Mm. And that sort of tends to increase your anxiety, your arousal levels, and you associate bed with being awake. So the idea is that you should really just only be in bed when you're asleep. And so the idea of sleep restriction is that it forces you to be so tired that you're going to actually sleep when you get to bed. Mm. And you're based on your, whatever you've you know calculated mm. from your sleep diary. And that will be different for different people. Some people will need eight hours. Some people may need, you know, as little as six hours so mm. um so yeah so that's that's the base of sleep restriction yeah. but as katie's saying for some for some illnesses like bipolar disorder you you know you want to be careful that you yeah. don't um sort of have um you know that doesn't cause 
yeah. sort of other problems. So in yeah. people with bipolar disorder, um, yeah. this is sort of related to another therapy, um, which is uh, called sleep deprivation therapy, which has been used, um, it was discovered uh, by some German psychiatrists in the 70s. You know, if you, if you keep someone awake who's really, really depressed all night, then their depressed moods goes um, they feel fine until they go back to sleep so it's okay. suggested that uh, sleep has some sleep deprivation has some sort of euphorogenic effect and there's lots of research now trying to figure out how to prolong mm. that antidepressant effect of sleep loss but what they also found later on is that when they did this in people who have bipolar depression um, that they some of them were becoming manic so that's why in CBTI they've had to um, some people in in the states Alison Harvey I think who's yeah. also based at is it UC mm. Berkeley? She's in Berkeley. Yeah. Berkeley yeah, yeah and so she's adapted CBTI um, change tweak it slightly so that it can be used in people with bipolar disorder so you don't uh, do use sleep restriction in in them because it there's a chance that you might become manic or mm. hypermanic yeah, it's just like from the question, in, in a way, it is more complicated. So probably if you get a good night's sleep, it might help your mood. Yeah. Uh, but for some people, actually, sleep deprivation can help your mood as well. So long-term sleep deprivation probably will l affect your mood. And then the issue becomes is then how would you get a good night's sleep? If, if you're, yeah. Yeah, if you're depressed. So and that's, that's the difficult. So it is a complicated area. So it's um, so yeah it, it's uh, and again this yeah so that that's it's so in a way it's got to be sort of uh, quite individually sort of there's no real easy answer with any of them really. no no it's no easy answer yeah. with them because it's uh, there's so many processes regulating your sleep your sleep is actually quite a priority area for your brain and it's it's there's so many checks and controls on it there are a lot of genes involved there are a lot of different areas of your brain mm -hmm. so to get one answer for everybody is, yeah. is, is quite tricky yeah. I suppose especially if you're at the crux of a, looking at psychiatric conditions mental health yeah. disorders and talking about sleep as well mm. in terms of an area of research is so complicated and so convoluted yeah. mm. well, I mean the treatment that you're talking about there with CBTI might work for one group of people yeah. with a particular yeah, condition exactly. yeah. and then might not work at all for another group of people who have got similar symptoms but a different yeah. condition themselves. And even if we assume that sleep loss definitely is a cause of, say, bipolar disorder, that wouldn't necessarily mean that it would be a cause for everybody because we know already that there are other things that will increase your risk of getting bipolar disorder or may have triggered the illness in you. So mm. if, for instance, it was alcohol, then you then getting a night, good night's sleep, but you're still drinking alcohol wouldn't, you know, <laughs> um, cure it, for instance. So if we um, look at things like so mental health with mental health conditions in particular, and some people who might have a genetic predisposition or might have uh, mm -hmm. genes that may mm -hmm. increase their risks, there's no gene that's suddenly going to specifically mm -hmm. give you a mental yeah. health condition, yeah. but may increase your risk. When there's GWASs, when GWASs have been performed, is anyone looking at the genes that also regulate yes. sleep? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what yeah, um, that's, the, yeah. the data that I'm using now is. Um, so, so one data set that I'm waiting for, that I'm going to be getting any minute now, um, uh, is actually looking at over one million people wow. with insomnia and looking at the genetic variants that are associated with that. And that's the biggest GMAS that's ever been done of insomnia. Well, yeah. yeah, So that'll be really interesting uh, to look at. Um, is that across a range of mental health conditions or one they well with this they've actually screened out anyone with a mental health condition so, so what my research aims to do is to look at those genetic variants associated with insomnia and, and generate um, like a genetic risk score in people with bipolar disorder to see whether um, having a higher genetic risk for insomnia is associated with say having more depressive episodes or things like that um, one interesting thing that's coming out of um, this work that we haven't mentioned today so far is the opposite of insomnia, which is hypersomnia. Okay. And that's where people report either feeling really, really sleepy, even though they've they've slept for quite a long time, um, or um, like having to doze off during the day. Um, and there's not that much research on hypersomnia, but it is an, an important um symptom for people with bipolar disorder and, and depression as well though. yeah mm -hmm. yeah 
um, and it does, you know, impair people's quality yeah. of life. Um, so one, one of the things I'm looking at is the genetics of hypersomnia as well in bipolar disorder um, as well. Sounds really, yeah, really exciting. I mean, that, yeah. that GWAS is huge. Yeah, it's yeah. massive, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Must be one big file. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's going to be huge, yeah. Um, and the other therapies, well, we haven't mentioned, um, I may have been used, I think some there are some researchers in Australia that I think are thinking about using this for depression as well. But in my area of bipolar disorder, um, there's another thing called interpersonal and social rhythm therapy. And that focuses on... Um, trying to uh, regulate all your circadian rhythms. So not only your light exposure, but also um, what time of day you eat meals, what time of day you have social activity, because we know all of those things can influence your body clock as well. And there's some evidence that um, that could be helpful for people with bipolar disorder um, if in terms of their mm. mood and their sleep. Yeah, that's fascinating. So the, just general lifestyle activities that mm. just mm. might also affect you. Yeah. Kind of so well. for instance, um, there's, uh, in e- if you exercise, um, there's some evidence that if you, if you exercise every day, then that will actually make your circadian rhythms more pronounced. So if you think of circadian rhythm like a wave, yeah. um, for people who have depression or bipolar disorder, there's some evidence they have more kind of flattened rhythms but if you exercise this was in this was actually in rats i think the study <laughs> but they found that the, the the amplitude so the height of the wave of the circadian rhythm was actually more pronounced if they if they exercised mm. so, so they, more yeah. obvious oh, that's, that's really fascinating so um we've come to the end of those questions but looking at the the report aj that you produced for mm. the fellowship which people can access on the uh, yeah. on the Memorial Trust website, yeah. which again, we'll put another link to, so you can read through that. It's a really, genuinely really interesting report in the work that is being done specifically out on the, the west coast of the US. Yeah. Uh, and some of the work that we've done here over in Cardiff as well. Mm. Um, you mentioned about some work on Drosophila on flies and yeah. insertion of genes to correct disturbed sleep patterns. Yeah, so there's, there's been some fascinating stuff because the, yeah, you, you think of fruit flies sort of um, not a good model for um, sleep and you'd be wondering, you know, why would people research it? But they're, they're very circadian. Basically, mm-hmm. they sleep when, they're, when it's dark and they're awake when it's light. So their sleep is an extreme of sort of... Um, of a, a, of a circadian rhythm and they've got and they've got genes which they've identified which control these circadian patterns so so in the difficulty we have for a lot of people with insomnia is as you mentioned there's loads of genes involved and um, you can't really correct genes but obviously in, but in the fruit fly there are genes which are um, which are implicated in, in in this in this problem so so they've been sort of uh, very interesting work where they've and I think the recipients actually got the Nobel Prize for it where where they um, they sort of uh, identified where there were fruit flies which where sleep was very poor they, they identified there were variants which you know might be responsible they they uh, there was they were they they edited those and those fruit flies then reverted to a normal circadian rhythm. So they're looking for drowsy flies. Drowsy, <laughs> yeah. So and it's an important because the circadian rhythm is hugely important for humans as well. Absolutely, yeah. It's not the only driver. Obviously, we have a sleep drive as well, which makes us sleepy, but and we have hyperarousal, but but a circadian rhythm is very important for sleep. So any kind of um, um, insights you get from uh, fruit flies is important in terms of um, you know because a lot of people some of their sleep problems will be quite circadian so so yeah so there's quite a lot of work going on there about it and, and I think that over the next few years there's going to be some very interesting stuff there was the study on using CBTI with fruit flies but I re- you know what? <laughs> <laughs> sort of a variant of CBTI yeah yeah so, <laughs> so, but uh, I don't think there's enough time to try and describe the the way they've uh, their experimental <laughs> program. But yeah, um, one of the things that our listeners can obviously and anyone who knows about NCMH can get involved with is the research that NCMH does. Um, and sleep is one of the things that we are, we have a particular 
focus on and are interested in doing more work with obviously not just mental health but there's also um, issues with sleep and the immune system but I think there's apart from the fact that we're encouraging people to sign up and get involved with our research it's important to understand that perhaps worrying too much about your sleep is going to make your sleep worse yeah so yeah. Mm-hmm. perhaps are we should we say that you should be aware of your sleep pattern but you shouldn't overly yeah and that's something that they target in cbti isn't it the, that's right the functional yeah. beliefs about mm. sleep thinking for instance oh if i don't sleep tonight then i'm going to crash the car tomorrow yeah um yeah. which no who no one's going to be able to get to sleep if, if that's what you're thinking about um mm. and the likelihood is you probably won't because yeah. yeah so no i think it's important because obviously there are so many newspaper headlines or this you know it's not sleeping can make you die you know young and obviously your body is quite robust to a lot of things so um in terms of you know re- actual risks it, you know you're probably the, you know and, and for many people that could be quite overstated in their own mind yeah so you know we're often talking about small increased risks so and it's important for people you know and that because that can then become a major barrier in them not sleeping because um because sleep is like actually switching off yeah mm. you know so anything which keeps you switched on which is a worry or anything or stimulation is going to interfere with sleep so mm. it's important that you know that um sleep worry doesn't become the problem so yeah. it's not you know so um as i said because insomnia because not sleeping well is pretty universal phenomena. I mean, nearly everyone has trouble sleeping at some time or the other. Yeah. Um, to end with, what one thing would you do? You both hope that people understand better about sleep or sleep cycles. Oh, um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I guess. Well, from this podcast or just in general? In general. In general. um, I guess just not thinking that if you just give up caffeine that 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 will just solve your sleep problems. Or sleep over-reliance on sleep hygiene kind of thing. So, like, yes, caffeine does affect your sleep. But if you've got... um, but if you've got a real problem with sleep like insomnia disorder then Mm. not drinking caffeine doesn't mean it'll solve the problem or um you know making sure you've got a nice mattress yes that's Mm. helpful it's better to sleep on a mattress than on a than on the floor or maybe depends on what your back's like i guess but you know the that's not going to solve things there's to have a greater appreciation of circadian rhythms and also not having these dysfunctional attitudes Mm. about sleep i think no i'd hope that people would use some of the behavioral things from CBTI more, which mm. are, which are quite easy to implement, really, yeah. and it's um, and um, you know, and so don't, don't lie in bed awake, you know, worrying is you know, so that's probably the one message, you know, it's it, it you know, it, it's uh, important that you know your behavior, that, you know, your behavior can be quite powerful in terms of helping you sleep. Mm. So it's not just so, and that's easier to implement than changing your thoughts sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one one tip that I I use um, that Colin Espy who's written this um, book that Andrew oh, yes. has here that's uh, really good and also uh, we'll discusses yeah, 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 yeah discusses yeah. Um, dealing with dysfunctional attitudes about uh, loss of sleep and things. Um, but one of those I remember him saying in one of his talks was if you're lying bed in bed at night and and you can't sleep then apply the 15 minute rule so don't watch the clock but just mm. estimate about 15 minutes and just say to yourself i'm not sleeping 15 minutes i'm going to get up and go go into another room and do something else um like read a book something quiet don't go and play like grand theft auto or something <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah just uh do that and then when you feel sleepy then go back to bed and i've tried this myself and you know most of the time just even the thought of getting out of bed i'm like oh i can't be bothered and i just fall asleep so it works really well <laughs> so um yeah we'll put that uh, book on so it's coping with insomnia and sleep problems um and we'll put that link to that uh, as well it just takes 30 minutes to read it's quite a short book and it's, and it's very helpful that's great yeah yeah and so just to say thank you both again for taking part in this for answering the questions and for getting involved with us really um, as usual with all our podcasts it'll be available for download for you to listen to online um, and also if you want to get involved in our research just fire off an email to us or get in touch with us through Instagram Twitter Facebook 
And you can access the Sleep Diary Curtis of NCMH. Hopefully it will understand your sleep cycle better. It will help you with the uh, sleep issues. And it has been uh, made with a lot of input from our researchers. Please make sure to rate and review the podcast and spread the word. And just to say thank you to Paul for producing the podcast and the communications team for the help of the podcast. And thank you very much for listening. And we'll hear from you next time. Bye-bye.